This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. It's about the protein gel matrix. It's not about the sugar water. If we were just doing word separation on sugar water, our lives would be much, much easier. Ironically, Nine out of 10 brewers speed up their runoff when they start sparging. And that's, that's the worst time. This week on the show, we bring you what is perhaps the most practical guide to wort separation on planet Earth. Hi, I'm Travis Audet, zone technical expert in brewing for Anheuser-Busch InBev. I guess before we get into the details of wort separation, Let's first talk about what the objectives are, because there are a whole lot more of them than just getting the liquid out of the solids, aren't there? Yeah, for sure, John. Um, You know, moving extract from the mesh, while that's the primary job, you know, there's a lot of quality considerations that go into that. Um, Generally, we want clear warts that are relatively low in lipids. Those lipids can, while they're important nutrient for yeast, they in too much abundance, they actually can go bad um, and you get some oxidized character from lipid oxidation, which we want to avoid. Polyphenol extraction is a risk in this step. Um, so you really want to limit last wort Play-Doh. You want to keep pH as low as possible during those last worts. The, the extraction of polyphenols actually has a lot more to do with pH rise than it does at the actual Play-Doh. It's just that Play-Doh is a good marker for pH rise because as the sugars reduce, the uh, the um, buffering capacity goes down and the pH rises. You know, you want to remember the right amount of calcium to help with pH, possibly acid additions. Sparging, um, there's there's a lot of, you know, a lot of steps, a lot of quality considerations that go along with just getting the extract out of the mash. Let's lay out the steps of wort separation. Why don't you tell us what's best, best practice there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the very first, uh, aside from starting with a clean vessel at the beginning of the brew week, is uh, uh, the right temperature. Uh, this gets missed a lot. You need to have that, that vessel not super cold before you mash into it or bring your mash into it because, uh, you know, the cooler you are that your mash is, the, the slower the runoff is, the higher the viscosity. Most brewers would put a foundation water in just above the false bottom. How you, if you're, you know, you want to include your press water. If you're a bigger brewery, you actually can count that in. But the idea is to get a, a blanket of water so you don't have a bunch of air under your plates when you pump your mash in. Uh, Vorloff, you're recirculating the wort to reach clarity is important. And then you go through your wort collections, generally called first words, second words, third words, final words, or, or last tap sometimes is called for the last collection of wort from the uh, the the mash ton or the lotter ton over to the to the kettle. Travis, going back to that work clarity issue, there are a lot of folks who try to achieve brilliant work clarity. Then there are others, for example, there's the approach we discussed with um, Magdalena from Zeman back on episode 97, 
in which they aim for cloudy wort because they want higher fatty acid and zinc concentrations. How about weighing in on that debate? What's the optimal point on that spectrum of wort clarity? Boy, I think as with most things in brewing, you, you have to let the results direct you and just be aware of the risk and rewards. So uh, for sure, higher lipid content will um, help in yeast growth. That may or may not be a good thing. Um, you know, you got to manage your fermentation, have the right peak cell count. Most fermentations, about 100, 100 million cells or so. Um, so if you add more lipid than you need, maybe you're getting growing too much. Um, and then, as I mentioned, that, that cloudy warts do have the risk of, of oxidized character. And as far as zinc, um, you know, there is some zinc in the malt, but uh, most fermentations are zinc depleted. Um, and I, I personally would be adding uh, a zinc, like a zinc heptahydrate um, that you could get from a scientific supply food grade um, to, to increase my zinc rather than um, possibly making cloudy words. Fair enough. I'm always surprised whenever I encounter a brew house that isn't equipped with a manometer, because to me, that's like driving a car with no gauges on the dashboard. Talk about what a manometer measures and why that variable is so important. Yeah, um, a manometer is a really basic way to know the diff pressure differential in your bed. So as we're flowing through the bed, there's resistance in that bed. And all things being equal, that generally becomes greater as we go through the steps of wort separation. So what a manometer is, is a level tube that connects to the underneath of your false bottom. And at the start of wort separation, without pumping, the level in the mash is equal to the level in your level two. In my very first brew house, seven barrel brew pub, that, that was a plastic Tigon hose. Um, and that ran up the side of the mash tun. And then as you start pumping away from your mash tun or your lotter tun into your kettle, you're going to see the level in the level tube or manometer get lower relative to the level of the mash. And the higher the differential pressure, the, the greater that difference is. As a rule of thumb, if you looked in, for example, the EBC, European Brewing Convention, best practice manual, they would generally say a pretty high differential of 12 inches of water column. So imagine if you measure the distance between the top of your mash to the liquid that's in the manometer tube or the level tube. If that gets up to about 12 inches, that's getting pretty critical in differential pressure. Uh, for sure, my, my very first mash tun, we had colored zip ties. And we had a color, colored zip tie method to kind of track what, what was good for that brew and what was um, not good for that brew. It is a bit brew dependent. And the other thing you got to remember is that the level inside the vessel is constantly changing. So it, it's a bit of a more art than science, but for sure, without, you know, if anyone's brewing without a manometer, uh, find one way to get one in today. And I, th I think you'll see a lot more of what's going on with your process. Good advice. And it's not necessarily just about what that differential is, but how it's changing over time, right? Because if it's, if that differential is increasing throughout your process, you got a problem. Yeah, for sure. You, generally, you're going to have the highest differential just before and after you sparge. Just before probably is obvious because you have uh, the greatest mash density, the lowest, um, uh, sorry, the yeah, the lowest grain to water ratio. What a lot of people forget is once you start sparging, the sparge water hasn't reached the bottom of the vessel, so your your density, your viscosity is not decreasing till approximately ten minutes after you start sparging. So often you'll even see greater differential after you start sparging. And ironically, nine out of 10 brewers speed up the runoff when they start sparging. And that's, that's the worst time. Travis, there's an equation that you'll find in most any brewing textbook that describes the important variables during wort separation. We just talked about one of them, which is the differential pressure. Talk about what we can learn from Darcy's Law. Yeah, Darcy's uh, incredible. I, I, I'm a bit of a fan of Darcy. I mean, this guy figured out how to make uh, drinking water distributed to homes actually work. Before his time, um, the water was all spoiling in the pipes. 
And all he simply did was was uh, use mixed sand filters. And he would remove a lot of the organic material so there was less for the bacteria to grow on the pipes. So he developed this whole equation around flow through these mixed sand filters. Um, and it became, you know, Darcy's law, the, the whole essentially flux, which is flow over square area, um, was based on uh, the area of the bed, the depth of the bed, the viscosity, uh, and then uh, the flow. Um, in some ways, Darcy's law applies well to lottery. Unfortunately, in some ways, it doesn't. And w where Darcy's law breaks down is or is not a homogeneous liquid. It actually is a, a mix of sugar and protein, what we call to generalize a generic term protein gel matrix. And that's where it tends to break down to a degree. So there's a lot of concepts in Darcy's law. If the permeability in the bed's less, you're going to have more resistance to the bed unless you reduce the flow. That's absolutely true. Where it breaks down is that we're not a homogeneous li liquid like water. Okay, well, tell us a little bit more. Let's get into um, um, describing some of the variables that are in Darcy's law. Um, I don't, I don't think we have to hit everything, but let's kind of just you know maybe describe a little bit more sort of the the relationship between you know the variables in that equation and what's going on in the in the water tone. Yeah, for sure. So obviously, flow. The higher the flow rate, the the more resistance in the bed. Um, if we change that one factor again, you're looking at each of these factors in a bubble. Of course, not not only one thing changes in our systems, unfortunately, but permeability of the bed. For us as brewers, that 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 generically is described as milgrime. It's it's actually again even a little more complex than that. It's I would phrase it more as husk um, preservation. The more we can preserve the husk while getting the rest of the starch ground to a fairly fine degree will help our permeability. So it's it's not just a fine grind versus coarse grind. It's it's you know husk preservation. Four roll mills help compared to two rolls, and then six roll mills are obviously the industry standard. Uh, wet milling, where you prehydrate the the grain ahead of time, also helps preserve husk. All these things are to lower the bulk density of the bed to increase the permeability. And likewise, cutting, cutting the bed with, with the raking unit also decreases permeability as well. Um, or, I'm sorry, increases permeability. I would actually argue it has a lot more to do with managing the protein gel matrix. So okay. uh, we, we can get to, into that um, in, in a minute that, here. Yeah. yeah. All right. So before we get into that, though, um, tell us, keep talking about milling, because that's, uh, that's a, obviously an important control point in our process. Talk about what we do and don't want there. Yeah, for sure. We, we want to preserve husk as much as possible while getting your fine material as, as fine as possible without getting the resistance in the bed too great. Um, we've, with advances in laudering, if you, if you look at like the traditional lauder ton grinds or mash ton grinds that you see out there, um, the technology in, in the newer high, you know, bigger brewery systems, frankly, can handle much finer grinds. I think a, a lot of what's called out in, for example, Coons or the Practical Brewer, those are fairly safe for even craft brewers. Um, but keeping that husk high, if depending, there's two systems of screens. I'm used to the North American system, which are a numbered screen system. The Europeans based on millimeter gaps because that makes more sense than numbers. But that being said, you know we're looking 10% on a number 10. That's your coarsest screen. Uh, probably about 20% on your number 14. You you peak at in your number 14, number 18, and, and then you continue to reduce as you move towards the pan. I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there are aware that, you know, just a simple set of screens is not that expensive. And there was some work done, I believe, by some brewers in the SBC where they handshake those to, to do that in-house. So you don't have to buy a rototap machine to, to get a sense of what your milk grants are. Yeah, and we've got a, um, there was a really good, uh, I guess it was maybe his first a district presentation, but we've got a, a podcast with Van Havick as well, where he kind of talks through optimal targets for uh for for course grinds for for small breweries um and the project he did sort of optimizing 
the um, brew house efficiency across a bunch of little small systems when he was with Rock Bottom. It's a pretty cool study. So, uh, I, Travis, I know you're going to want to talk about um, one of Dr. Lewis's publications from back in 1985. We'll put a link to that TQ paper in the show notes, but tell us what's important about that study. Yeah, this is great. So Michael Lewis and Sang Sok Oh published a paper in 85. Um, and, you know, I hinted towards uh, the the Darcy equation not being a perfect fit for brewing. And that's because of that protein gel matrix that we have. We're dealing more than just one liquid solution. We have two, li- essentially two liquids that behave vastly different. We have our sugar water. But then we have the protein gel matrix, and that's made up of, you know, obviously protein. So think of egg drop soup at a restaurant or think of uh, uh, what you see at the end of boil when you look in your kettle. The, the gel is a mix of uh, beta-glucanase and, the, and the, the other one we don't talk about very much, arabinose islands, which are actually probably more important in brewing. Um, those tend to be highly viscous. And so what Lewis and O did is they made a benchtop simulation. They had a jacketed tube so they wouldn't lose heat during the process. And they had glass beads and they were different sizes. And then what they did is they created a work with all the sugar and the protein gel matrix. And they they looked at the rate that they could move this liquid through the, the beads. And then they repeated that test. But this time they treated the work ahead of time with tannin. And the tannin precipitated out um, the protein gel matrix. And then when they ran this work through the the beads, the the jacketed cylinder, the the rates were, you know, vastly faster than without the protein gel matrix. And and what they really proved is is that the criticality of work separation, um, when we talk about viscosity and all these things, it's, it's about the protein gel matrix. It's not about the sugar water. If we were just doing wort separation on sugar water, our lives would be much, much easier. Travis, um, what's the relationship between um, that protein gel matrix and what um, people will oftentimes refer to as Teague formation that you can see on top of the water ton? Are those two the same thing or are they, uh, is one uh, indicator of the other? Well, first, we haven't gotten talking about mash tons yet, Um, but with mixed mashes, that would have to be processed through a lauder ton. Generally, what you see before you start laudering is some acrospires floating against the surface of the liquid, but you actually won't see the Ubertig. And just to define what Ubertig is, the G- Germans have been talking about this f- forever. They've had, they have Ubertig, they have under, uh, I can't remember the German word for under, Inter, but under yeah. Teague, yeah, under Teague. They've been talking about this for a long, long time. So, so when we look at a mixed mash in our wort separation vessel, you're going to see acrospires and some bubbles. The, the uber-teague, the over-teague, or the over-dough, is sitting in between, just above your grain, and um, b- below the liquid wort level. Um, and when that enters the bed, once you start running off and that enters the bed, that's when your differential pressure can start getting quite difficult to deal with. Small changes in the denominator of Mr. Darcy's equation have a big impact on the process. We've mentioned this before on the show, but talk about the approach AB takes in regards to the variables in the denominator. Yeah, so, you know, if we look at the denominator, we have um, viscosity and we have depth of the bed. So viscosity, there's very little we can really do about other than a making sure we're at the right temperature because as our temperature drops we're going to have increase in viscosity so what's the right temperature generally uh 176 fahrenheit or roughly um 70 i'm a little rusty here maybe or something c or so there's a little bit of debate do you extract negative compounds you get hotter i'm I'm not going to get into that debate i will say if you do go too hot the reason not to go too, too hot is because um, you might have some more rupturing of starch structure. And then you have, if you go above the alpha amylase activity, you'll have starch haze. So that's the real technical reason why we don't want to go too hot in our mash off in our lottery. Anyways, so you asked about 
the denominator. So we have viscosity in there, and again, temperature is about the only thing we really can do other than managing the viscosity of the beta-glucan, sorry, the, the, the protein gel matrix. Uh, the other is depth of the bed. And this is a common one that awfully, often gets ignored, especially in craft brewing, because what's happened in craft brewing is, you know, bombastic beers. That's what a lot of people are making these days. So you're, you know, might be trying to make a wort that's 16, 17 Play-Doh, right? And what does that mean for your lotter time bed? It means we're highly loaded, right? Because it probably wasn't designed for that, that degree. I'd say 16 or 17 is nothing these days. You'd probably yeah. see in the mid twenties. <laughs> and that's why a few brewers are, are going to the mash filters because the mash filters do do a couple things. Well, one of them is that they do make really high gravity words efficiently. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so what I was getting at about that though, is um, I think Anheuser-Busch is well known for taking a, a very smart approach to dealing with that. You guys have incredibly shallow beds in your, in your water tons, don't you? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, you, you probably look at them and see them as shallow, and I look at them saying, thinking they're still too deep, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, within, within reason, you want to be as thin as you can be within reason. But, um, you know, as, as a rule of thumb, uh, if you were going to do s- some math, you know, roughly about 38, uh, 41 pounds per square foot, or if you're going to do that metric, about 180 to 200 kilograms per square meter, that, that is in general kind of the range you're looking for for bed loading for a well-optimized wort separation system. This, this does not, mash, mash tons are a totally different piece. Um, but for lauder tons, that's a good area to be in. It depends how well-designed your lauder vessel is. I, I don't want to pick on the, the brew house manufacturers for the small brewers, but frankly, a lot of the lauder tons I see out there are not designed to a typical best practice, I'll just say. There are exceptions for small brewers, but it's not the norm. I fully agree. And um, just to put that in perspective, that amount of loading for you guys, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that typically results in a, something between like an 8 and 10 inch bed depth um, on your side, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty small number, you know, compared to what you've seen in a lot of craft brew houses. Exactly. Travis, we've got a pretty great deep dive episode on the topic of mash thickness as it relates to brew house efficiency. I believe that's episode number 44 with Eddie Gutierrez and Drew Russi at St. Arnold. But go ahead and give us uh, some objectives and limits in regards to mash density. Yeah, for mash density, just as as a rule of thumb, about 130 pounds per barrel of water. you don't really want to be above that. That's that's roughly about 50 kilograms per hectoliter. Um, just, you know, wh- why not thicker? Um, first, there's the wort separation issue and viscosity will go up the thicker we are. Your protein gel becomes bigger relative to the brew size or to the, the sorry, the wort separation vessel size. Um, there's also issues around enzyme and enzyme activity and, and, and hydration of starches. So there's a lot of other things that go into why that, that recommendations there. Let's hear about a given water tone's sensitivity to beta-glucan, as well as the role that shear plays in the process. Yeah, um, beta-glucan is interesting. Um, beta-glucan oven itself is viscosity is not terrible. I mean, it's, it's significant. Where beta-glucans and arabinozylans become much more of a problem is when they become sheared. And as they become smaller, this is counterintuitive, as they become smaller, they actually begin to nest together. And then you get that non-Newtonian type effect. So think of a ketchup bottle. The harder you shake it, actually, the, the less the ketchup comes out. Or if you've ever seen a video of someone walking across a starch pool of water, that's liquids that are having high degree of friction between each other, so they behave in a non-Newtonian way. And that's exactly what beta-glucans and arabinozylans do, especially when they become sheared. All right. So make sure you got the right pump and don't go too fast, right? That's right. All right. How about some uh, practical advice for Vorloff speeds? 
Yeah, first, um, before I talk about Vorloth speeds, I want to talk about Vorloth rest. All right, do it. This this is the forgotten stepchild of brewing. Uh, it's an extra five minutes you can save in your day, right? I know. <laughs> that's that's one less beer for me at the bar by the end of the day, right? Because I spent five more minutes brewing. Uh-huh. But but the truth is, Vorloff rest is inc- incredibly important. And you'll see it called out in, for example, Kuhn's textbook um, and not many other places. And this is one of the places where German dogmas got it perfectly right. And and this is for mixed mashes, by the way, not not mash tons. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, hopefully. But um, the what happens in a Vorloff rest is if you don't let the after you pump your mash over, if you don't let the mash rest, the beta glucan won't. Um, sorry, the protein gel matrix won't be able to migrate out of the mash. Initially, it is completely homogenized in the mash, but its density is less. Not a lot less. Very relatively small distance. So it takes about five, maybe even ten minutes, depending on your brew house dynamics, for the protein gel to move out of the bed. But if you get that out of the bed, now you have much longer before you have to start dealing with it. And you'll be dealing with it more as a a single mass instead of it just sprinkled throughout the bed. And then as far as flow rates, for sure, you don't want to go too fast or you're going to set the bed, quote unquote, where the bed gets set so hard that it's hard to ever reduce the differential pressure. As a rule of thumb, um, about 0.3 barrels per hour per square foot, or if you're in a metric world, then God bless you, 3.8 hectoliters per hour per meter squared is generally a good guidelines. These these are all out of, by the way, the EBC good practice manual, which are slowly becoming out of print. But if you can find the manual, it's an excellent resource. Could you put that Vorloff speed in perspective to to first wort speed, maybe? Yeah. Um, I'll first tell you my philosophy on first wort speeds, and then, and then we'll answer the question. So a lot of brewers on first worts, um, that would be the time when you start running to your kettle to roughly when you start sparging, um, run all the same flow rate the whole time. I actually think that's not a great strategy because the bed, just like if you fill a sponge at your sink and hold it over the sink, the water's just going to flow out of the sponge very quickly at first, and then it will become more difficult. And your lotter ton is no different. So actually what I recommend is you go with a, relatively high flow rate but let's let's say you have a 100 barrel brew size and you're going to start sparging at say 50 i'm picking some arbitrary numbers here i would flow quite you know maybe probably let me think here we want to get it done in 90 minutes so you kind of have to do the math but you want to pick a fairly high flow rate for the first 20 say barrels a lower flow rate for your next 20 and i would even pick another lower flow rate for your next 20 now notice i went into i went to a point past the start of sparge and that hints to the whole concept that you need 10 minutes for the sparge water to get to the bottom of your your wort separation vessel before you start increasing flow rate again is is that pretty much 10 minutes no matter what the size of your your system is or is that vary a little bit you think well, it depends a little bit on bed loading. So if you had to wait to see density or that kind of thing, but it's it's a good rule of thumb. In our vessels, it's actually about six to seven minutes. So, all right. Um, and then, so back to your question, what what is the Vorloff rate relative to the first work flow rate? It depends a little bit on the strategy you're using that I just described. What I would do, um, I would run, I would run. Um, close to first wort speed because there should be little resistance in the bed if you gave time for the protein gel matrix to migrate out. And as long as you can double check that with a manometer and make sure that you're not pulling a, a big differential, then that should should you know be all the assurance you need, right? Hallelujah. Coming up. And the idea there is to break up channeling in the bed without ever touching the bed with a canoe paddle or anything else. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. (laughs) 
there's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Ontario is hosting a diversity webinar February 17th. Districts Rocky Mountain and St. Louis both meet February 18th. February 23rd is part one of a three-part webinar series on the topic of brewing CO2 and the current shortage affecting the industry. The first 25 registrations are discounted, so act fast. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has a scholarship kickoff and seltzer panel February 25th. Districts Milwaukee and St. Louis both meet March 18th. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Now back to the show. Let's talk about some of the pros and cons of the combi vessels versus lauder tunnels. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of combi vessel, combination mash tun, lauder tun or combination mash tuns, word separation. Um, I used them early in my career. You have Guinness that's been using them for, you know, a long, long time, very successfully. And what's so cool about combination mash tuns is the, if you don't stir them, which they are not supposed to be stirred, and if you just allow the hot water to mix with the grain as it falls in. The The total mash is suspended with air. You got to remember, you know, before we panic about hot side aeration, we got to remember the air is 78% nitrogen. And, um, and those air particle, particles actually stick to the grain. They stick to the, to the, the cellulose structure that's still left. Well, initially it will be starch and it will be moving to to sugar and cellulose structure, the, the skeleton of the starch molecule, and then you'll have husk. And if, if, we, if we treat the mash gently, we'll have lots of air in there, and the, whole, the bulk density of the mash is much, much less in a combination mash ton than it is in a mixed mash lauder ton situation. 
And that's why you'll see bed depths much deeper in combi mash tons. Or if you ever get to see the, a picture of uh, Guinness's mash tons, you'll notice how much higher height to diameter ratio, how much higher they are compared to width. And that's all because of the air. That being said, there are a lot of brewers out there with canoe paddles on their combi mash ton. And I don't know if they do this because everyone else is doing it or if because maybe their water to grain hydration is not that great. But we want to make sure we don't mix the mash any more than absolutely necessary, preferably not whatsoever. Because if we touch the mash, it's very fragile and we lose some of that air that's suspending that mash and your runoff will be more difficult. What else would you like to say about sort of um, the combi tons uh, versus, versus water tons there? Uh, the, the other thing that I think a lot of people may or may not be aware of is, while you don't have a raking machine in your combi mash ton, if you've taken care to keep the air entrained with the mash, you can actually break up channeling in a, in a combination mash ton. And you do that with something that I learned as, as being called the accordion effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. No. Tell us about it. So the idea here is since your mash is floating, if you actually vary your sparge rate relative to your runoff rate, the bed will actually move up and down. That would never never happen with a mixed mash. And so what you can do is when you first start sparging, you would start your sparge rate higher than your runoff rate. And you would actually get the bed to start expanding like an accordion and after five ten minutes of that you decrease your sparge rate and have the bed compress again somewhat and then you might even cycle that one to two more times and the idea there is to break up channeling in the bed without ever touching the bed with a canoe paddle or anything else let's take a look at water tons now uh, there are a lot of different designs out there uh, as you alluded to both good and bad what are some of the important points and things to look for in a functional water ton? Yeah, first, you know, just as a reminder that really what a water ton's doing with a raking machine, and a lot of people um, might miss this point, is the rakes are actually managing the protein gel matrix. The rakes are actually designed in a way, a, a good, well-designed water ton is, is designed in a way that it will resuspend and redistribute the protein gel matrix because that protein gel matrix is constantly wanting to drive to the bottom of the vessel so what we actually look to do is we get the best effect of redistributing that protein gel matrix when the rakes are lifting up and turning slowly and that's that there are two areas here that i see as as weakness in a lot of water tons out there and, and one is the shape and size of the shoe Wide and very low angled is important because it essentially acts like just like a gentle soup spoon stirring the soup gently. You're just trying to gently lift up and redistribute the protein gel matrix. I think of it like wet newspapers. If you had a a wet newspaper, you know, nothing's going to flow through a wet newspaper. But imagine if you took scissors, could cut up the wet newspaper you know, the Sunday edition, and then resuspend all those layers of the newspaper throughout your bed. So now suddenly your, your work is moving down through the bed like a pinball or a pinko machine, right? It's having an easier time moving through all this, these, these, these constrictions. And, and that's what you're looking to do. So you do that with the, a nice wide shoe. You do that, the angle, the lifting angle is pretty low being it's not steep and then you're turning slowly like and here's one i see often way too fast we're, we're looking for 22 minutes per revolution notice i didn't say rpm that's normally what we think of exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah this is minutes per revolution 22 minutes to do a whole turn through the bed and we do that because it, we want gentle action, and we never want to spin the bed. We never actually want to have the, we don't want to mix the bed. We want to cut the bed. Exactly. And I've seen, I mean, I think this is a really common problem in craft um, brew houses. You see um, where I think the gearboxes they put on these things are optimized for grain out instead of for cutting the bed. That's exactly right. The way the big breweries do it is they actually have a separate small horsepower motor 
to do um, the cutting job, and then they have a larger motor to do the large shop. I have worked on even 16 hectoliter um, system uh, that was able to do both jobs properly at 22 RPM, sorry, 22 minutes per revolution, uh, and grain out duty all in one motor. But it, it, it's a tricky engineering job for sure. So uh, another point there is uh, I've encountered a lot of um, craft lauder tons where the rate height is fixed because the vendor and the brewer is trying to save money. Talk yep. about why that's a bad idea. Yeah, you're just you're 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 <laughs> you're just not getting any of that lifting of the protein gel matrix, which is so critical for good laudering operations. So. You know, here we're we're getting to the more basic idea that we're cutting the bed to make channels for the work to flow down through. Um, that's okay as long as we don't channel the bed. But you know, you if you're cutting through a wall of protein gel matrix, then the wort's just going to follow behind the rake and just go to the bottom, and that's where you get channeling and leaving pockets of sweet wort behind. I don't know if it's in the current versions but in some of the original publications of the of the um kunsa book uh they have a water ton diagram in there and they kind of walk you through the the progression of laudering you know and um and in that diagram it shows uh in theirs it shows the the rake raking unit height starting off relatively high and they show it decreasing um basically as the um dp increases they they they're dropping the raking unit and then they get to a point where the dp kind of spikes and so they drop the raking unit down to you know close to its lowest point at which point the the dp um falls off turbidity jumps up and then they pull the raking unit back up that seems a little um counterintuitive to what we're describing here talk us through what you know about that for sure. What you have described has been um, an approach that's been used in brewing for a long, long time. Um, if you, Briggs, uh, the brew house manufacturer in the UK, they, they um, present a concept of wave raking. And that's also in the EBC manual of good practice. And what they describe is, is actually having the rakes arbitrarily go up and down um, until DP differential pressure gets so high that then they would do a bed cut. And so, you know, essentially what they're arguing is let's, let's be proactive about resuspending the protein gel matrix in the bed. Before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Before it becomes a problem. So um, I, I'm more, I, I am more of the camp of um, being proactive instead of reactive. Um, I, I think a lot of people... Um, I would argue that um, the bed cut where we send the rakes down to roughly three eighths to five eighths off the floor. We don't want to get too close and risk hitting anything, right? But um, that that bed cut. Uh, one thing is we never want to do a flying bed cut. So this is when our differential pressure has reached a high level. Uh, I mentioned before about 12 inches of water column. That equals about 300 millimeters of water column if you're in the metric world. Um, some brewers go up as high as uh, 24 inches of water column or 600 millimeters of uh, water column. In either case, whatever you use for your bed cut, you would send your rakes all the way down to quote-unquote zero which is really three-eighths to five-eighths off the floor, and do approximately, it's a little bit debatable here, but we'll say one rotation, probably depending, your speed would be faster. So I said 22 minutes per revolution for normal raking. We're probably looking 12 to 15 minutes per revolution for this step. And we run the rakes down at the bottom height, and then we would raise them back up. I believe part of the reason that this process is so effective for dealing with differential pressure is not because we had the rakes at zero, but because we lifted the rakes up after we were done resuspending the protein gel matrix. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is I can't prove that. <laughs> <laughs> I have no way to prove that, that um, it was the lifting of the rakes rather than the zero. I, I don't know how to do that. And then, you know, 
there's the turbidity problem too, but I, I would have turbidity with what I'm describing too. So we want to avoid, my view is we want to avoid bed cuts if we can. Um, they're not productive time. We don't want to, sorry, we don't want to do what's called a flying bed cut. That's where we try to flow to the kettle while we run the rakes at quote unquote zero. And the reason for that is, is we're dealing with that protein gel matrix. And we want the protein gel matrix to be lifted up and pulled away from the bottom of the, the water ton. And if you're simultaneously trying to pull it down, that's not helping you. Exactly. There will be too much. It's, the density difference is so little that it's not going to want to lift away from the bottom if we're pumping at the same time. Makes good sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, there's also some donut-style lauder tons on the market. Talk about the principles behind those designs. Yeah, this is interesting. If, if you think about a rake moving through a lauder ton, and we're moving at 22 minutes per revolution. Would the outer rake be moving at the same speed as the inner rake? It's the same arm. Nope. <laughs> no, it's not. Absolutely. Yeah, the outer shoe is moving at a much higher velocity relative to square um, to the to the radius than the inner shoe, and that means that the inner shoe is much less effective on the bed than the outer rake is. Now, if we raise the speed to make the inner shoe effective. Now our outer shoes are just moving so fast that they will could spin the bed, which is not good. So what some what uh, at least one broom house manufacturer has done is essentially just cut out the middle of the lotter ton and put in a traffic cone, essentially a stainless steel traffic cone, and just said, you know what, the the center of this vessel is so inefficient, we're just going to take it out of the equation. And it, to a degree, it makes sense. It really does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Not all false bottoms are equal. What do we want to look for there? Yeah, the the pretty much um, the industry standard that I've seen is double milled false bottom screens. They give you fairly good open space, about thirteen percent, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it needs to be strong enough to hold the the differential pressure. We don't want to crush the false bottom from too much differential pressure. And the double milling is really important. If you have a single milling, that's literally just one rectangular slot through the metal. What happens with double milling is you do your first cut, and then on the back side you do a V cut. And the V cut, um, a there's less resistance to flow because the thickness of the metal it's flowing across um, through is much less because it gets wide just on halfway through the plate or a third of the way through a plate and two it really reduces clogging but as you can imagine to double mill a plate compared to single milling is more cost um the other style out there that i have never worked with um is called wedge wire and that's where you take a essentially a v-shaped wire and you lay it onto a perpendicular i guess for better word a frame um, those have about 18% open area, area. Um, but that area, that, that gap, maybe even 25%, but that gap is just not as accurate. And, and again, I haven't worked with them. I, I wonder a little bit about strength. Um, they're certainly more expensive than double milling. Um, actually, it's the other way around. The double oh, yeah. milling is a lot, lot more expensive. Um, the reason you see ah. so much wedge wire in craft brew houses is because it's cheaper. Um, because they're basically just tack welding it to a to a frame, like you're uh, like you meant, like you said. But you um, the um, the pros and it's definitely not as robust as a as milled slot plate. Um, but one of the arguments that proponents of it make is they'll say, well, it's easier to repair a small section, you know, <laughs> if just if, if a little bit pops up or whatever. But um, but yeah, I've seen a lot more damaged wedge wire out there in the industry than than milled slot plate, and yeah. um, yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, I feel like water tons used to not have all that many draw off ports. Then we went through a phase where they started putting a ridiculous number of them on new systems. And nowadays, perhaps there's more of a happy medium. What's the current conventional wisdom in regards to how many ports per square foot or meter or, or whatever? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So, um, just some of the basics. So, uh, first, the height of the false bottom off the floor is important. If if 
you're too close, then the differential, the, the forced to your dry off port being applied to this, the false bottom above gets too great. It's not dispersed over the surface area. It gets like a, you're put, it's like sucking on a straw instead of a funnel. And so typically false bombs are mounted um, three eighths to three quarter inch off the floor. That's roughly, that's symmetric, about 10 to 20 millimeters. Um, the other thing you can do to avoid this, this bed compression, this directional bed compression is you can tulip the draw off. So you essentially um, reduce up to a larger size before you meet, meet the lotter ton floor. Of course, that's a cost. And, and so you'll find that on better design uh, vessels. As far as draw-off ports, as a rule of thumb, um, just again coming from the EBC manual, um, about 0.08 draw-off ports per square foot. That works out to about 0.86 per square meter. Um, there's some interesting history here. So someone at some point said, hey, the way I can avoid this directional uh, issue is if I put 10 times more draw-off ports on the vessel. So now I have much less flow per draw-off port, so I have less directional compression on the bed. And that sounded like a great idea. But what happened was the velocity in each of those pipes, now that we have so many more pipes, decreased because the overall flow per pipe was less. And what happened in these lotter tons all over the industries, they had a lot of clogged trough pipes underneath the lotter ton because the velocity was low. And that's actually a tricky thing to catch. That's something where you, the most simple way is to pick up the, the false bottom floor and, and put a washdown hose down every pipe um, and make sure it doesn't back up on you or, or run even a, a video camera down there. Um, I, see, I think some people will test check them by just doing like an infrared thermometer type of thing just to see the temperature on them, you know, because if you got a clogged one, it's going to be a lot cooler than the others. Yeah, that's a great when idea too. In process. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, okay. Talk about that, the size of that plenum underneath of the false bottom. I've seen a lot of craft systems where that plenum is way too big. Um, I've even brewed on a system where we stopped adding foundation water because it was just so much of a dilution that it totally killed brew house efficiency. What, what should the size of that plenum be? Boy, I, I've never looked in the engineering of that, but uh, for sure, it, you're, if, you ha if you're a brewer that's decided you want to have foundation water, that's, that's water that you're going to lose the sparge water. And we call that water balance or how much, what your total water balance is on your brew. And you, you want as much sparge as you can within reason. And um, so as little as possible, but it still needs to be able to handle um, solids. It needs to be able to handle um, flow fluctuations. So I would actually generally say you kind of want to, you really want to keep it on, on the low end of what's practical. We already mentioned manometers. What else should be mandatory equipment on a water tone? Yeah, I think the next very next thing is flow meter. I mean, I've I've brewed without a flow meter, but you can even get uh, mechanical flow meters. It's it's just a disc in a sight glass, and the sight glass could be etched. And is it perfect? No. Is it accurate? Maybe not. Is it repeatable? Yes. And that's what matters. Yeah, I, I brewed on a, a pretty old German system that it just had a, a little tiny disc on a hinge that would, you know, flap in the in the sight glass. And I mean, yeah, it wasn't it it wasn't a mag meter in line, but it was uh, the next best thing for sure, and yeah. a lot cheaper. Yep, for sure. I mean, those to me are the most basic things. I'm a big fan of um, acidifying sparge, so that that adds a level of complexity. But that's because of um, the whole dynamic of polyphenol extraction and increasing pH. So that would be another nice to have if, if I could have. Um, but you know, it, 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 you know, and then obviously differential pressure meters, because the, the, the beauty of a differential pressure compared to a manometer is a manometer is relative to the height of the bed in the vessel. A differential pressure meter you have one above the false bottom floor and one underneath the false bottom floor. No matter what's going on in the heights of the bed, it's always going to be telling you to true differential pressure. And that's just essentially two different pressure transducers that's that's going to the PLC and telling you the, the difference between them, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and they don't get clogged either. So that's that's no, another they, they they look a lot like a Jiffy Pop popcorn. So do you um do you, I I've always wanted to do this in a craft um, brew house and I've never had the right installation where um it, it made sense and the people writing checks agreed to it. Um do you um do you ever automate your flow rates based on um your your do you ever automate your pump speed, you know, and therefore water flow rate based on the inputs from those pressure transducers? Yeah, there's there's multiple ways to do it. Um there's kind of really two philosophies. There's the, um, I'm going to tell the large ton what time, what flow rate to flow at, and then I'm going to move my rakes to deal with the differential pressure. The other approach is to manage the differential pressure and vary your flow rate. And the second one is less common, but it does make some sense to me on one level, and that is that. If you kind of work with the system, you might actually net a faster draw off by managing the differential pressure than trying to muscle the differential pressure. And that's essentially what we're doing when we're telling the system to run at X flow rate for X amount of barrels before we increase or decrease. Um, So it's something I've always been intrigued by. I have not had a chance to run one in that method in my career. If you ask five different craft brewers when to start sparging, you might get five different answers. You already told us a little bit about um, the way that AB does it, but do you have anything else to add in regards to that that decision point? Yeah. Uh, first of all, if you're using a combi mash ton, it's difficult because the mash is floating. So uh, really what you want to use is that manometer and past brews to decide when things start getting a little out of hand. For mixed mashes that are used in a lotter ton, it's a lot easier because what happens is the mash is sitting below the standing wort, and that wort will drain down through the bed into the point where you're actually just starting to see the grain looking through the wort. Generally, what I like to recommend is the wort is either just touching the grain, or you might actually get a little bit of peaking or a valium peak between the rakes and in between the rakes. If you have that, I'd even push it just a little bit further so that you expose the grain just a little bit on the peaks, but you leave wort in the valley. And the reason it's so important to not start any later than that, if you allow the wort to move down into the grain, you might get away with that one time or two times. But the question is, is you don't know how late you're starting because you can't see the wort. So you lose all reference. So obviously the idea here is we want to start as late as possible because we want a, a good barrier, a good wall of, of non-sugar sparge pushing the word out in a perfect world. Of course, it's not that perfect. So we want to start late, but we don't want to start so late that then we cause differential pressure problems. Because just like you and me, we may weigh more in the air than we do in the water. And our mash is no different. So as we allow the work to drain through the mash, now the, the weight of the mash on the floor and the compression that will start occurring, it it's it's, it's very, happens very, very quick. So you've got to be it's careful. It's a time bomb, yeah. 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 Did, uh, did you ever work with Wayne Atkins? No. Um, he was a, he's an AB guy who, um, I guess, retired when, um, during the, the 08, 09 uh, retirement packages that went out. But he... Um, He's he gave a couple of similar laudering talks like this for me at at District Mid Atlantic um, many years ago, and I always thought um, he was a, a really smart, practical guy like you. And he um, he would always say uh, rule of thumb would be wait until about twenty five percent of the grain bed has been exposed, but no more than that. Which sounds pretty similar to what pretty, you're saying. Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Any other sparging tips before we move on? No, just um, there's no working the bed in a mixed mash. So generally, you're going to match your sparge to your flow rate. The one exception, there are some breweries out there doing deluge sparge. And what that means is you actually start your sparge at a higher flow rate to just cover all the grain again. And then you would match speed. So just a little nuance. Try it. See if it works for you and your brewery. Um, It works for some, not for others. So, uh, Travis, there are a lot of a lot of trade offs in brewing, as as you alluded to. 
Uh, so sometimes theory and practice don't line up. You've put a few best practice laudering benchmarks to the test at AB. Do you want to talk about any of those trials? Sure. We did some testing um, using some of the benchmarks in the EBC manual good practice. Uh, one was around mash transfer speeds. They recommend no faster than about 4.9 feet per second or 1.5 meters per second. Um, those are typically like CIP flow rates, right? And uh, so we, we had a brewery that was about double that flow rate. And the question was, if we move to the best practice, um, do we see uh, better results? And we looked at yield, how many cuts, how many bed cuts we did, and, and then uh, the, the turbidity. And, and in this case, uh, yield, we didn't see a change. Um, the, the vol- sorry, the volume till we did our first cut was um, uh, a little bit later uh, by slowing down. Uh, same with the second cut. So they did three bed, bed cuts total, and the first two were a little bit delayed. Uh, turbidity was less um, when we pumped over slower. And I think what's going on there is a little bit of the, the pump possibly damaging the protein. And, and uh, if someone really was set to get clearer words, um, this idea, as far as what we saw, might be more impactful than, for example, certainly yield or um, the amount of bed cuts or how soon they happen. All right. What about the next one? Yeah, the next one is around um, uh, we did Vorloff and work draw off speed. So, um, you know, you want your bed to clear pretty, pretty quickly once you start Vorloffing, but you don't want to create differential pressure while you're doing that. And the, you know, the EBC Good Manual called out about 0.3 barrels per hour per square foot flow rate or roughly about 3.8 hectolitre per hour per square meter flow rate for your first words in Vorloff. Um, this brewery was about um, about the same target for Vorloff, but its first words was significantly faster. So our test was to go exactly to the good practice manual for Vorloff and also for first word. And what we saw here um, on one brand, uh, we saw the test brews where we raised the Vorloff slightly and slowed down the first words. Um, Turbidity dropped significantly. And again, I think it's a little bit about that protein gel moving out of the bed and and keeping things nice and clear. Uh, We had another brand we did this on, and um, that even showed a greater reduction in turbidity. As far as yield, uh, on one brand uh, that had low bed loading, um, we didn't see much of a difference in yield, but we did see a slight improvement. But on another brand where we had higher bed loading, this made a much bigger difference. And I I think what was going on here is that um, we didn't suck that protein gel matrix down low in the bed. And so we had less resistance in the bed, less channeling and better sparging and and extract extraction. Cool. All right. And then the last test you did was kind of, um, I guess, something we alluded to earlier with with, uh, slower flow speeds that you ramp up over time, right? Yeah, this one's fascinating. So, you know, we've talked a lot about flow rates, but flow increasing rates. How fast do we go from one flow rate to another? Is that important? Um, and we ha- we kind of, this is something we wa- want to explore on our own. I- I've never found this defined for the brewing industry, um, but we kind of picked a number that we thought was safe and, and slower than what we were currently doing. So our-, our current practice was to have a flow increase change of, now this is relative to the brew size. So everyone's got to break out their pencil and calculator and, and do the math here. But we're talking about a brew size that's probably about 600 barrels. U.S. barrels appear. And on a brew size that size, we were increasing flow rate by 300 barrels per hour in a minute. So that's kind of a funky uh, unit. But 300 barrels per hour in a minute, we were making that degree of flow change. If you if you work that out to square foot, sorry, I forgot that I have defined this, but that's about 0.264 barrels per hour per minute per square foot or 2.7 hectoliters per hour per minute um, per meter square. So 
at a high level. If we reduce our flow rate increases by reducing it three times, so from 300 barrels per hour per minute to 100 barrels per hour per minute, do we see a change in how long the runoff takes and yields? So, uh, on one brand we tested this on, obviously the cycle time went up, not, not by a large amount, but from about 140 to about 145 or so. On another beer. Another beer at the end of the day for the bar. And uh, and the other brand we saw kind of, you know, a little bit slower, but not not terrible, less, less than you would think. So then the question is, do I get more yield? And the bad news is, uh, while the data was a little inconclusive in general, no, we did not affect the yield. The idea here is if we were speeding up too fast, somehow we would channel or set the bed. And we didn't prove that in our testing. Now, I am sure there is a point where your flow rate increases will be uh, negative to your laudering performance. But for the, the numbers I shared, we did not see that. That was longtime Master Brewers contributor Travis Audet here on the Master Brewers podcast. As always, you'll find a ton of relevant links in the show notes, ranging from articles Travis mentioned, Ask the Brewmasters discussion threads, other relevant podcast episodes, and a save the date for the next Master Brewers conference where you can sit down and have a beer with Travis. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 